open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Our scripture reading is going to be verses 13 through 21. So 1 John 4, 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of his holy word this morning. And it is a wonderful morning. The sun is out. It's a wonderful time of year for some of us, and some of us don't like it too much, but I enjoy the sun, and so I'm in much better moods whenever it's out. But I do feel a little skewed this week, as it's the second week of July, and I usually preach the first week of the month, but uh, I was in Bellingham last week as my nephew was born a couple weeks ago, so we went up to uh, meet him and see how my brother and my sister-in-law were doing, so I do appreciate the leniency there to uh, be able to move up or forward a week to to preach. So uh, thank you all for for that. This morning, we are going to hopefully be finishing up chapter 4 of 1 John. Uh, This passage that we just read should be very familiar to you as we've been looking at it the last few weeks because there is so much here that the Apostle, by inspiration, has written. There's so much here to apply to our lives. There's so much here to feed us uh, by God's Word. But we are here at the end of it today, and so my my challenge is to um, conclude this chapter so we can continue on into verse 5. But before we jump in, let us bow, let us pray, let us ask the Lord to bless this time that we have this morning. Father in heaven, we recognize this morning that we get to be here. We do not have to be here. We uh, could have stayed in bed. We could have chosen to do other things today. But Lord, we live in a place where we have the privilege of publicly and openly gathering for worship, the worship of your Son. Father, we do recognize that there are those around the world who do not share in that privilege, but do faithfully still gather at the risk of their own freedom and sometimes their lives. So, Father, would you help us this morning not to take this opportunity and this privilege for granted? We just pray that uh, you would bless the preaching of your word today, which you keep me from error, 
Would you cause myself to decrease, that Christ might increase? Would you uh, open our hearts and our ears and our minds to the message that you have for us today? Lord, we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as we have gone through this wonderful epistle, if we were to summarize this letter from John in just one simple word, um, I would summarize it with the word love. That is a, a, a continuing theme throughout this short book, and we can't do that with every book of the Bible. Uh, for example, the book of Romans, I think, would be very hard to condense into just one word. But John, uh, as sometimes he's referred to as uh, the disciple of love. He refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so love is a uh, continuing theme throughout his writings, and, and the same can be said here of First John. And we see this, that, that all of the law and all of the prophets can be summarized with the word love. When Jesus is approached and asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all the prophets come down to these two laws and this idea of love. And I'll give a quick recap. I know we've talked about this uh, throughout the last few weeks, so I won't take too much time to do it. But we've talked about what love is. And we know that love is not uh, allowing people to continue in sin. Love is not this idea of what the world presents love to be. There's the phrase that we see a lot, and especially last month, uh, love is love. And we don't really know what that means. It's very open-ended. It makes absolutely no sense. But here, John tells us what love is in these passages. He says, God is love. And so if we are going to love correctly, if we are going to have the right definition of love, if we are going to have the right trajectory of love, then we need to be in line with what God says about love. And God says to love him and to love each other. And so as we continue to talk about love this morning, we're going to look at this uh, section that we've been looking at, but uh, specifically uh, verses 18 through 21 to uh, finish it off. And while John does talk a lot about love and he has kind of circular uh, discussions going on where he uses the, the term antichrist is used, uh, the contrast of light and darkness, children of God, children of the devil. He circles around with it, but he doesn't tend to repeat the same point every single time. He brings something new to the table. And so let's go back for a moment to verse 17, if you still have your Bibles open there, just to give a little bit more of a direct context here. And it says, by this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the direct context that we have from verse 17 is judgment. We have confidence in the day of judgment. By this is love perfected with us. And there's this other 
contrast that, that John is going back to that we've seen before. We have the, anti, the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of God. These two things are opposites of each other. They don't play well together. For how can light mix with darkness? How can the spirit of God mingle with the spirit of darkness? And so when we, when we take this idea of judgment, we have to keep those things in mind. Christ, Antichrist, believer, unbeliever, it, it brings to that context. But verse 18 is one of those verses that I see and find on the internet and in talking with people that is also often taken out of context. It kind of goes along in the same realm as Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you see that verse quoted on a lot of athletes' profiles, especially younger, when they're getting ready for the big game. They say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's my strength. He's my hope. And while that's true, that's not what the verse is talking about. Or when somebody is going for that dream job and they're maybe a little underqualified and they think, well, I don't, I don't know about this, but... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We kind of see the same idea here in a lot of ways when we say there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I'll tell you this, love in general, if we're taking just a general idea of love, there is fear in that kind of love. There's fear of rejection, there's fear of, of uh, being betrayed and hurt. And ultimately, when it comes to the darkness, when it comes to the contrast, when it comes to unbelievers, they do have plenty to fear. And I will say, too, that for a believer who, John says, has no reason to fear here, for perfect love casts out all fear, the context is here with the judgment. We do not fear the judgment of God. Believers have no reason to fear the judgment of God. Now, I think about an interview I saw a number of years ago with Dr. R.C. Sproul, and he was asked about death. He was asked about um, just this whole idea of death and what comes, comes next, and he didn't, I don't think he quoted this verse, but he seemed to allude to it a little bit, and he said that he has no fear in death. He knows where he's going. He's secure in his salvation. He knows his Lord, and he looks forward to seeing his Lord face to face. And that's how we all, if we call upon the name of Christ as our Savior, that should be our uh, idea as well. That should be what we look forward to, to see the face of our Savior. But Sproul, in the way that he often did things, he put on a big smile and chuckled a little bit, and he says, but I will tell you this. I do fear how I'm going to die. I think we all would love to just go to sleep and then open our eyes and view our Savior face to face. No pain, no struggle, no anything like that. But this verse isn't saying we can't be afraid of certain things. You know, I am afraid of spiders. <laughs> okay? And I don't think it, it matters how much I'm loved or how, what context I take love in. If there was a spider right here, I would have to call somebody up to deal with it because I would not be doing that. Okay? Now, if there are spiders in the new earth, that'll be fine. 
You know, I don't know how God's going to do that, but that's a miracle that only he can do. But it'll be fine. But in the context of judgment, believers have no reason to fear. Because, but one of the things that we have to consider is that there is a day of judgment coming. And Christians acknowledge this. Christians uh, think more about this than probably anybody else. Um, and not in the sense of climate change or anything like that, but in the return of our Savior in the return of Christ to come and judge the, the, the whole world. And we get a bad rap for it because we have the pictures of the people with the sandwich board signs that say the end is coming or repent, but all of that is essentially true. You may not agree with how it's presented, but it is true. The end is coming. We don't know when it's going to be, but uh, the Bible does speak that Christ will return to judge. And one of the big differences between a Christian and a non-Christian, or at least I hope this is a big difference between the two, is one of the reasons we don't have to fear the day of judgment is because we have already come face to face with our sins. When we get saved, when, when the Spirit convicts our heart of sin, and we, we come to terms with how scummy and wicked and wretched that we actually are, and we repent of our sins and we, 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 we look to the cross as our only hope, we have come face to face with our sin, and we see Christ took our sin on himself on the cross. For somebody who is outside of Christ, for somebody who is not a believer, the problem is they have not come face to face with their sin. They don't want to come face to face with their sin, and part of that is because they don't actually believe that they have sin. They love their sin. The Christian hates their sin. The Christian grows in holiness. The Christian uh, learns how wicked sin actually is, where the one who loves sin will grow in their love for sin if God does not intervene in their life. But the world rejects this day of, de- of judgment because it means they have to come face to face with their own sinfulness. They don't want to be told what's right and what's wrong. They don't want to be told that they live in darkness. Um, well, I would say they don't want to be told they're children of the devil. That seems to be a growing trend nowadays with uh, people like that, that uh, image on themselves. It's, it's very popular nowadays. But we're seeing Romans chapter 1 played out in front of us. That God has given them over to a debased mind. God has given them over to their sin. And they do have everything to fear on that final day of judgment. But in Christ, there is no fear because love has been perfected. And this is not to say that we who are in Christ love Perfectly, We can't love perfectly. We will not be able in this life to love perfectly because we are tainted. We have sin. So it's not that we love perfectly, but it's that love has been perfected in us in Christ. And we'll talk about more uh, that again in a moment. But let's go back to verse 18 one more time. It says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This word punishment is is something that we need to consider as well. Christians will be corrected by God and other Christians. Christians will be rebuked. 
Christians will be tested, Christians will be convicted, and Christians will be disciplined by God or the church. But we are not under punishment. For if we are under punishment, what did Christ take upon himself on the cross? Christ took our punishment for sin. Christ took that upon himself. Outside of Christ, there is still the deadness of sin to a person. There is still punishment and righteous judgment and the wrath of God to be poured out. But we can take encouragement if we call upon the Lord as our Savior, as our God. We can take the encouragement and know that we have the hope that our sins are forgiven, that God does not count those sins against us. And as we move into verse 19, which is uh, one of my favorite verses, I think I've said that several times as I've preached over the years. This, is, this one's my favorite verse, or this is one of my favorite verses. And the truth is they're all my favorite verses, just in different contexts. But for a Christian, be encouraged. Please take what is written here, take what John says through the inspiration of, of the Spirit and be encouraged in it. And if you are not a Christian this morning, if you're visiting or you don't know or you haven't called upon the name of Christ, I would encourage you to just listen and hear the hope that is presented here. Verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. So usually when we consider... Uh, something like this. It's a cause and effect. But John has flipped those and he gives us the effect and the cause. Okay? He says, we love because he first loved us. God is the cause and the effect is that we love. And this verse is really a summary of verses 7 through 16. So if we go back to verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so how do we love? He says, love one another. How do we love? We love because he first loved us. And then verses 9 and 10. And we move down. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God showed his love to us by sending his Son. That was love on display. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how do we, again, show this love to others? We show it because, and we're able to because God first loved us. Verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So how do we know God if we've never seen him? And this will come back in, in a moment. But we love others because he first loved us. That love of God is poured out upon us. We love others and we show the love of God to those around us. And then verses 13 and 16, I won't read those again. But this gives us that assurance of that hope. It gives us that assurance of our salvation that God abides in us and we in him. And it goes back to the, the vine and the branches that, that Jesus talked about in his ministry. Abide in me. Abide in me. So you did not earn God's love. There's nothing about you 
that is lovely and beautiful and wonderful and worthy of God's love in your natural state. And for us, I don't think that's much of an ego um, attack because we've heard that over and over and over again and we believe it. But before the foundations of the world, God chose you and by his son, he loved you. Again, not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but because God in his great mercy and his great kindness chose to love you by his son. And this is why you can't have the father if you reject the son. Uh, If we go back to verses 9 and 10 here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And if we also go back to chapter 2, verse 23, we read here, No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. You can see the theme circulating throughout this epistle as we continue to go back and forth, that John is, is, is pressing this upon those who who read this letter. Those who have the Son also have the Father. Those who have the Father also have the Son. So this another way to say this is God loved you long before you ever loved him. If you think of Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ didn't wait for you to get your stuff together and, and get your life in order and make sure everything was hunky-dory in your life because it couldn't happen. Nothing was going to be hunky-dory in your life. But God, while you were yet sinners, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. And so there is some discussion here, too, that I think needs to be addressed. And while it's not... My focus this morning, it is important, but there is some discussion on the object of our love here in verse 19. The first phrase, we love. Okay, well, what or who do we love? And there is um, discussion on this, and there are some manuscripts that actually say we love God because he first loved us. This is likely not the original rendering of this verse, but there is, of course, truth here. We cannot love God unless he saves us. We cannot love God unless he first loved us. We, at best, in our sinful state, are maybe appreciative of some sort of deity out there. And we get a lot of that. But we cannot truly love God. We cannot be acceptable to God unless God acts first. And so there is truth in saying that we love God because he first loved us. But... There's also the argument that can be made that because of verse 20 and the focus that is on believers and the church and our, our brothers, uh, that this, this is the object of our love. That this is what it's referring to when it says that we love, and we can insert the word others, because he first loved us. And this can also make sense because we cannot truly love anyone else if God has not first loved us. We think of uh, a non-believer who maybe he is a good husband and a good father 
He provides. He does all the, the things that society and culture say he should do to be considered a good person. But ultimately, if anything is not done in faith, it's sin. And the things that he is doing, while it's good for this world and it's good for his wife and it's good for his children, he's doing it out of ultimately selfish reasons. He's doing it for himself or he's doing it for others. He's not doing it to glorify God. He's not doing it because he's obeying the commands of God. But in faith, with a changed heart, we can please God in our love for others because ultimately we're doing it out of obedience and love for God. So, in conclusion there, there is no acceptable love in the eyes of God outside of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So all the tests that John has given in this epistle are designed to help us examine ourselves and to see, do we love God? Do we love our brothers? Because that's one of the tests of that you can use to see, do I love God, is do you love the brethren? Do you love those other believers? Um, Sproul, again, this is the second time I'm using Sproul this time around, he, when he would talk to people who were doubting, and he would even say, this isn't a perfect test, he says, if you want a perfect test, go read the Bible. But if he was talking to people who were questioning, you know, am I, am I saved? I don't know. He would ask them usually three questions. And he says, well, do you love God perfectly? And the answer that all of us will give to that question is absolutely not. We can't love perfectly. We can't love anybody perfectly, let alone God. And he'd say, okay. Well, do you love God the way you ought to love him? Well, if we're really going to dig down deep, we ought to love God perfectly. So... There's a failure in question two that we would have to say, no, we can't love God the way we ought to. And then his third question was, do you love God at all? Do you have any affection for the true Christ? Do you have any affection for the true God who is presented in the Bible? And he would say, if the answer to that question is yes, while it's not a perfect test, while it's not um, something that he got from here, um, necessarily in, in the way that he phrases the question, the unregenerate heart cannot love God. The unregenerate heart cannot love the true Christ. And so he would say that a, a, a pretty good test for you is if you have any affection for the true biblical Christ at all, you're, you're, you're doing okay. You need discipleship, you need to read the Bible, but you're doing okay. And so John here would add to that, and I would add to that, along with that, do you love the church? So if you're going to say, I love God, if you're going to say, I love Jesus, do you love the church at all? Do you long to be in fellowship with other believers? Do you long to serve your church? Are you here this morning out of love for each other and, and for God, or are you here out of duty because you feel like you have to be here? Well, I just woke up, it's Sunday, this is something I do, and just go to church. I understand that there are bad days. I understand that there are times you don't want to get out of bed. But I found on those days, especially if it's the Lord's Day, when I'm here, when I'm among other believers, when I'm encouraged, when I'm worshiping, when I'm singing, when I hear the word preached and preached faithfully, 
know, I may not have the best day in the world, but it starts off really good. It starts off really good because this is important. There's nothing more important in your life than, than loving God. He should be above your family, your friends, your duty. You love God. And because you love God, you love your family and your friends, your duty, your job. You do it well. But it's all connected. And so when we continue on here, John again repeats something else. He, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John comes back to this reoccurring theme, love your brother, love the brethren. If you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. If you love God, you will love also the brethren. So it is kind of a recap and it's really easy for us, I think, to say we love God or we have some sort of affection for God. That's not the biblical God. Okay? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, pagans in some way all have an affection or an appreciation for something that is not the biblical God. And they can say, yeah, I love God, sure. But do they love Christians, do they love the church? And the answer is no, because they're not part of the church. And just so we know, as we know a false teacher by their fruit, so you can also know a Christian by their fruit. Do they love the brothers? And here John says that that is one of the big proofs. It's not the only proof. You have to take the whole Bible as a whole. But this is one of the proofs. So to say, I love God but hate my brother makes you a liar. We see this in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see this multiple times in this epistle. Just to give you a quick recap here. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. That's chapter 2, verse 9. If you, you're blind, that's verse 11 of chapter 2. You're the child of the devil. That's chapter 3, verse 10. And then you're a murderer. Chapter 3, verse 15. So if we were to say we love God, but we hate our brothers, we are self-deceived. So the question that I have for you as we look to wrap up this morning is, do you love those around you? And last week, Pastor, had you think about those who were in front of you, behind you, and next to you, and, and uh, think about it again. Think about those who are around you who are sitting here right now. Do you love one another? This is not to say that we, can, we should start doing the greeting time that some churches do where you get up and make small talk or anything like that, but just consider it. Who is sitting next to you? Who is sitting in front of you? Who is sitting behind you? Do you love that person? When we get our, the emails of the prayer lists and who to pray for, do you do it? Do you read through those and think, oh, I'll get to it eventually or... Uh, yeah, I guess, but I got other things to do. Do you sit down and do you look through that? Do you hurt with the people who are around you who are hurting? Do you rejoice with the people who are around you who are rejoicing? Do you come alongside in fellowship in the ways that we can't see? A really good argument that John uses when it comes to what we see is in verse 20. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen. So somebody, you can actually look around and you can see them. And if you hate them, you cannot love God who you can't see and who you don't see. God is love, verse 8 says. And if you hate your brother who you can see and feel and all that sensory stuff, you cannot love the one who you can't see because you are acting uh, against the nature of that God that supposedly lives in you. For he is love. So if we love God, we will also love others. And hate, I know, is one of the most natural things for a sinner to feel. We don't really have to teach somebody how to hate. If you don't discipline, if you don't raise your children, um, they're not going to have to learn how to hate. They're just going to sin. They're going to do what they want to do. They're going to act in selfishness. But you do have to teach people how to love in a certain way. You know, when I think of my girls, and one's in the no phase right now, and one's in the mine phase right now, and when you have one saying, that's mine, and the other saying, no, it can be very difficult. But you have to direct them. You have to discipline. You have to teach them. And one of the first ways a kid can learn how to love is how to share. Give them a turn. But you do have to teach someone to love, and God teaches us to love. Okay? He teaches us by his example, and he teaches us by the spirit that lives in us. It's part of sanctification. But we do need examples of love, and God did indeed take the initiative in that area because we are dead to trespasses and sins and couldn't do it on our own, so God had to take the initiative. And God took the initiative on the cross. God took the initiative when he sent his son to earth to live the perfect life that God requires you and I to live and to die the death that you and I deserve. And he rose him from the dead. And that is the picture, that's love on display. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is the hope that is offered to you this morning, church. This is the hope of the gospel. And I want to close here with a couple song lyrics that um, they're not, this is, this band would not consider themselves a worship band, but they are Christians, and I think they have some, some good, good stuff to say. They're my favorite band of all time, and if you know them, if you're not my wife or my mom, then I'd be surprised, but awesome if you do. Uh, he writes one, one song, one of the lyrics goes, While I'm on this road, you take my hand. Somehow you really love who I really am. I push you away, still you won't let go. You grow your roses on my barren soul. Who am I to be loved by you? And Christians, we can take that. Our love is never going to be perfect. There may be times we even try and push God away. We may be in times where we don't walk in accordance with how how he calls us to, to walk. But if you are God's, if God has you, he will not lose you. And we can take hope in that today because we love him because he first loved us. And the second is, if I had to write a story of the greatest love in time, I would have to sing of you how I'm this branch and you're the vine. Because I'm yours and you will always be mine. It seems like madness I'm invited to the table by your side. I'm yours and you are mine. I'm a man whose one ambition is to dance with my divine. Because I am yours and you are mine. We take that as well. Because it was the greatest love in time. We are grafted into Christ. 
We are the branch. He is the vine. And again, if he holds you in his hand, he will not let you go. And so I hope that's encouraging for you. And, and I've done a lot of work. Uh, I've been in charismatic churches, and I've, I've gone through all that. And sometimes even saying God loves you can wrongfully have a, have a weird feeling for me because I think of the, the empty love that, that a lot of people just think of God. Well, God loves you just the way, way you are. Okay, no, he doesn't. He loves you in Christ, and you need to be sanctified. But God took that initiative, and he sent his son for us. So if you are in Christ today, you are God's. You belong to him, church. He loves you more than you can comprehend because he loves you in Christ Jesus. You are secure. You are in his hand, and he loses none who belong to him. Take comfort in this. And I don't know what all of you are actually going through today. I know what some of you are because of prayer lists and all that. But if it's a time of joy, be thankful. Give, give thanks to the Lord and his blessing in your life and for giving you this, these good gifts. If you're struggling, do not push God away. Do not run away. Run to him, to him. And if you're here and you're struggling, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're among other believers. Lay your burdens at his feet in prayer. Repent of your sins if that's something you need to do this morning. And be thankful still in the bad times. And know that you have a great high priest who sympathizes with you. And remember that we love because he loved you first. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing that we have to be reminded of this love. This love that you have shown to us by your son, Jesus Christ. This love that calls us out of the grave. This love that calls us away from death and into life. And Father, we are so thankful for that love put on display. We're so thankful that in your kindness and your mercy, you called out our names and called us to yourself. Now, Father, as we continue in our worship Today, in the rest of this service, and the afternoon service that is coming, I pray that you would continue to convict us, work in our lives, uh, sanctify us, and conform us more and more every day into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.